This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Change Forever. Another busy week in Washington. The January 6th committee wrapped up its 18-month probe into the insurrection. It, it came up with its referrals recommending that the DOJ charge former President Trump with four crimes, including inciting the insurrection, obstruction of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and conspiracy to make false statements. But it's up to the Department of Justice. But what we're going to do on this program today, ACF this week, we're going to talk about the findings of the January 6th committee with Jonathan Weiner, formerly of the State Department. But first, we're joined now by Christopher Rodriguez the Director of the Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency for the City of Washington, D.C. He was in charge of D.C.'s response to the insurrection on January 6. Chris, was the attack on the Capitol the result of an intelligence failure? I'm of the opinion that uh, it was not an intelligence failure. You don't think it was? No, uh, the, it was not an intelligence failure, a failure to share intelligence. Um, as a former CIA officer and someone who has almost 20 years of experience in Homeland Security and intelligence, it really was uh, a failure to act and to posture to the intelligence. A failure to act. Yes. So the information was there that there was the potential for violence. There, there was a lot of information and intelligence that suggested the strong potential uh, for violence on January 6th. Why do you think there was a failure to act? Well, uh, I can't really speak for the federal government and its posture um, here in the city. Under our mayor's leadership, Mayor Bowser, we presented uh, intelligence, uh, the Metropolitan Police Department and uh, the Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency that indicated the strong potential for violence and the need for the city uh, to prepare. And so um, once we briefed her on that intelligence, Certainly, we requested uh, the support of the D.C. National Guard, and we requested uh, support from our surrounding jurisdictions 
and all of our public safety agencies were put on high alert. Did the city request help from the federal government? The city requested the support of the D.C. National Guard, which is a federal entity. Um, the mayor does not have direct control of the D.C. National Guard. So those requests have to go to the Department of Defense for their approval of our request. What about the FBI? What about DHS? In the lead up to uh, January 6th, and certainly in the post-election period, post-election, pre-January 6th period, um, it's important to note and to recall that here in the city, we had uh, two large-scale protests um, that occurred on November 14th and December 12th, where thousands of the former president's supporters came to the city to protest the election result. Metropolitan Police Department, our public safety agencies, uh, made sure that um, we were doing our best to protect residents and visitors in the district. We did see some clashes at night with counter-protesters. And so during that whole uh, period, uh, we were uh, sharing information uh, with the FBI, with DHS INA, intelligence and analysis, and uh, making sure that we were also getting uh, intelligence from them. So there was a strong uh, intelligence sharing. But did you expect the federal government to provide support, security? We did expect that, that the federal government would protect federal assets and, and that you know, they would do their best to posture to the intelligence that we were all seeing. Um, and you know, it turned out, obviously, uh, at the Capitol that, um, you know, unfortunately, what happened happened. I don't think anyone could have anticipated sort of the events of that day. But you knew that people were going to be armed. We had seen some information and some intelligence that uh, people espousing that they would come to the district armed. That was something, of course, that concerned us, certainly concerned the police chief, the mayor, um, because what we cannot tolerate are people who want to come to the city of Washington, D.C. and break our laws. And, of course, it is illegal to have uh, guns here in the city. Part of the January 6th testimony is that in the White House, the Secret Service was informing the executive branch that there were people in the crowd armed, people in trees armed but that the president at the time said, I don't care, they're here to help me. Was D.C. seeing the same kind of threat level rise? Well, um, the bringing uh, weapons into the city, we had seen that in, November, in the November and December protests that came here to the city and there were arrests that were made by the Metropolitan Police Department of people having and possessing guns. Um, we did uh, hear that on that day, that on January 6th, that there were weapons that were brought um, into the district, and certainly we had to act on that as well. So yes, we did hear that intelligence, and we, we were aware of it. You said you had to act on it. Did you have the resources to act on it? Well, um, the city was fully mobilized for that day, and so arrests were made for, for gun possession, and we were com completely and fully mobilized to make sure that we were protecting uh, the residents and visitors of the district. All right, so where did the failure occur? Well, I, in, in, in my view, again, as someone who's uh, an intelligence officer uh, by trade, um, I, I believe that there was an unwillingness or an inability to take the intelligence that we were all seeing and to act upon it and to posture to it operationally. Who's, whose fault was that? Well, that's, uh, that's very difficult uh, to assign blame. I don't have all the information about why the federal government made decisions that it made uh, to not posture. Um, certainly, what I can speak to is what the city did. Um, and because of the city's preparedness and its posture, uh, it was able to respond to the Capitol as quickly um, as it did when there were calls for, from the U.S. Capitol Police 
to uh, the Metropolitan Police Department and our fire and EMS department that our, our support arrived within minutes. Do you think that the biggest problem that day was the executive branch, the president, not ordering a more robust response? Do you think that was the problem? I do believe that um, the, the, the challenge uh, that we faced uh, in the city was um, a lack of cooperation from uh, the White House and from the executive branch. A lack of cooperation? Yes. Um, to, to provide um, resources quickly and to posture to the intelligence. It was always something that we were concerned about. Um, I can, again, I cannot speak for the bureaucracy of the federal government and how decisions are made and how they're communicated uh, down the chain. Um, but what I can say is that we saw the intelligence and we were uh, prepared um, for any contingency. Do you think that's why lives were lost as a result of that day? I think that preparedness and uh, operational uh, posture, obviously, uh, with what we've seen in hindsight, could have been stronger. And I know that that's what the committee spent a lot of time on and what went wrong and, and where were the communications breakdowns. But what I would caution is that the apparatus, the intelligence apparatus and information sharing apparatus that was developed by the Congress uh, after 9-11, it worked. The intelligence was there about the strong potential for violence. Now, inherently, intelligence is a human enterprise. People can choose to posture to that intelligence or they can choose not to. Um, but we should not uh, try to change and, and significantly alter the structures, the intelligence and information sharing structures that were put in place after 9-11 um, because they worked on January 6th. The challenge was that humans were making decisions about how they would face the threats that we were looking at. Humans with political motives. That's correct. What you're saying, it seems to me, is that that was the problem. It wasn't the product. It wasn't the intelligence, but it was humans with a political motive making the decisions. In the intelligence community, we refer to it as the politicization of intelligence. Right? And we are taught in the intelligence community that we always have to be wary of that, um, that the best analysts and the best intelligence officers, you don't know what their political affiliation is, um, that we have to look at data and information in, a, in an objective way um, and convey threat uh, to decision makers uh, through critical thinking and analysis. And so when intelligence is then politicized, when it is taken and it's used um, to support a political endeavor or a political opinion, um, that is when there can be uh, violence and there can be a breakdown of, of the information sharing relationships and intelligence that, that we all live by. Do you think that's what happened in terms of what the White House view of what was happening on January 6th? I think there was politicization of intelligence on January 6th, and, or in the lead up to it, uh, and, and unwillingness to, um, to take seriously the threats uh, that we were facing. And, and again, context is important here. The District of Columbia had experienced large-scale protests in May and June of 2020, and then was entering a period uh, in the, in, during the presidential election, where we were very concerned about the potential for social disruption after the election and up to the inauguration. And we were bracing ourselves um, and briefing our leadership as well 
that there was a strong potential that the next, that the fall, that the, that the three to four months between election day and the inauguration would, would be challenging for us. And, and uh, you know, that was something we were very concerned about. We have information suggesting that part of the issue was that during social justice summer, what the city of D.C. realized was that down the road, potentially, if there were problems, the potential for violence, and just to hear that information is sort of disturbing, that the relations were that strained at that point that you could not count on the federal government's help should there be a problem in the city. As the Homeland Security Director for the city, um, coming out of the May and June timeframe, when we literally saw um, unmarked federal agents armed patrolling our streets with, with absolutely no um, notification to city leadership or to the police department, we realized that, that a breakdown in communication had happened, that the men and women in uniform were being used as political tools um, in our city. As we entered the fall and in the run-up to the presidential election, uh, as the Homeland Security Director, I had to assume that we would not get support from the federal government if we asked for it in a, in a very turbulent post-election period. Wait a second. Uh, you know, I'm trying to let that sink in. So the, the capital city is concerned that if there was a problem, the feds weren't going to help. I could speak for myself, but that was my concern, that we could not depend on the federal government to support us. Well, where did the president fit into that game planning? Did you expect support from him? Well, in as we thought about what the post-election period would look like, and certainly in the rhetoric coming from the White House, um, we imagined that uh, there would be uh, strong uh, feelings and opinions about the outcome of the election, uh, no matter who won. Um, and and we, were, we were planning for violence on both sides, incidentally. What we did see, of course, was uh, the announcement of the now president and his victory, uh, and then a, a, a rhetoric and a narrative that was trying to be created that somehow the election was stolen. Um, that created, in, our, in, in my view, um, and as I tried to game plan out, um, a scenario in which uh, incumbency and the presidency itself had a decided advantage in our scenario and could use the tools of government to undermine the credibility of the system, uh, which could, of course, spark violence in the streets of the city. And that was something we would not tolerate. Given what you'd seen over the months leading up to January 6th, what kind of threat were you seeing from the White House that factored into your decision making? I was concerned about the, and, and I think we were all concerned about the potential for another May-June 2020 outcome from the supporters of the now former president. Not providing the help that the city needed to protect the city, to protect the people of the city. Had you ever, in your experience, game planned where the president of the United States was the potential problem. That's correct. Uh, in my time at CIA and certainly here in D.C., who swore an oath to the Constitution um, and to protecting and defending the laws of the United States, it was very troubling for me and I know for my staff to look at what the president was tweeting. Um, that is just unsettling to me, um, again, as a, as, a, as a former intelligence officer. But 
what we were looking at was how people were responding to what it was he was saying and tweeting. And those responses were very concerning because they did suggest a strong potential for bringing weapons to the city and the strong potential for violence. And in that scenario, uh, we were concerned that we would not be able to rely on the federal government. But did you ever sit there and just think about what you were seeing, what you were game planning for? What were you feeling at the time having to do what you were doing and think what you were thinking? It was very challenging for me because I don't think any of us ever want to be in a situation where we're looking at the president of the United States, suggesting about our electoral system, about our democracy, and about ways to handle what was to him uh, not the preferred outcome and to almost resort to violence. So that was very concerning for me, for my staff. It was very hard on them. But we showed up and we were there and we were serving and making sure that democracy was protected. You've worked through both Democratic and Republican administrations. Is that right? I had the, uh, I had the honor of serving uh, under a Republican governor, uh, Chris Christie, in New Jersey as the Homeland Security Director, and of course have the privilege of uh, being a member of Mayor Muriel Bowser's uh, cabinet here in Washington, D.C., so, uh, and served at CIA under both the George W. Bush and the Obama administrations. Uh, and so, you know, I have served both parties and, and, and politicians from both parties. Uh, but again, it was very concerning as a career intelligence official, an American, uh, to see what we saw on January 6th. As we approach the two-year anniversary, what runs through your mind? Um, well, I think it's important to recognize uh, the brave men and women who stood up uh, and saved democracy that day. And I mean that from the Metropolitan Police Department, Fire and EMS Department here in Washington, D.C., of course, the U.S. Capitol Police and our, and our regional partners as well, who were there helping to clear the Capitol. We had states as far north as New Jersey and in Maryland and Virginia sending resources into the Capitol to protect the Capitol. So I, wanna, I think we need to think about um, those brave men and women, as well as the people who died that day um, and, have, and have died in the years and, and months after uh, January 6th. Do you think the problems that law enforcement faced that day, two years later, have those problems been fixed? We, we share and, and we have great relationships with our federal partners. The FBI, Secret Service, uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security, its Intelligence and Analysis Office, we are sharing information constantly. We're meeting constantly um, at my level, but also at um, our analyst level, at the working level, building those relationships um, so that we are um, united in our common mission to protect the nation's capital, but also to make sure that people who want to come to the nation's capital and express their grievances, they can do that because um, those are the rights guaranteed to them under the First Amendment. But what they can't do is come to our city commit violence, seek to coerce or to intimidate our residents and our visitors to push a political end. That sounds good, but is there a but here? Out of all the problems, the lessons been learned. We are constantly refining um, our relationships, our information sharing mechanisms, having discussions. Um, it's good to have disagreements in the intelligence community, right? That's how you 
innovate, you create, you think differently, you think outside the box. So, um, but we, but we are united to make sure that we want to, um, uh, make sure those relationships are strong and sharing intelligence and sharing information. Not everything's perfect. It never is. Um, but the important thing is that we're all uh, united in our common mission to protect the nation's capital. What did you tell the January 6th committee that, um, when they asked you what went wrong that day, what did you say? Well, I was, uh, you know, I said that I didn't think it was an intelligence information sharing failure. I think that if they were going to look critically at uh, the problems and to, and to diagnose them, you would really look at why people made decisions they made to not posture to the intelligence. And uh, that goes across the spectrum, the federal spectrum. Um, and, you know, I, I think they, they did do that. They asked some of those questions. But um, I want to make sure that, again, as a consumer and a deliverer of intelligence to the federal government, that we don't upend the structures that have been put in place uh, to share information and to institutionalize relationships uh, between federal, state, and local entities. Are you confident that that won't happen again? I mean, after 9-11, I think we were talking about the politicization of the intelligence. Um, you know, I think, you know, not just you, but a lot of people were hoping, oh, we've moved beyond that now. But all these years later, what you're saying is it happened again on January 6th. January 6th was certainly, uh, in my view, the most significant terrorist attack on the United States since 9-11. And um, I think if you look at the federal definition of terrorism, it would meet that criteria. The answer to your question, whether it happened again, is I don't know. Um, that's the honest answer. But what we are doing here at the Homeland Security Emergency Management Agency is looking for indicators and triggers for violence, um, that there would be aspirations to... Uh, commit th that type of attack again or similar attacks, whether that would happen here in Washington, D.C., in other parts of the country, which we're also communicating with and sharing information with. We have seen calls for, for example, a second civil war. Um, we've seen threats against election officials even after the midterms recently. Um, and so those are indicators, right, triggers for violence. And so we have to do our part here in the nation's capital to make sure that when we do see those indicators of violence, we're pushing them out to the nation, to the country, and to our counterparts. So again, they can keep their uh, residents and citizens safe. What was it like in the command center that day? Was it confusion? Um, well, it wasn't confusion, but uh, it was, I think, shock in terms of uh, how far people were willing to go. Uh, following a false narrative. But, you know, and, and we had people in our command center who had family members at the Capitol um, who were first responders at 9-11 who experienced what could best be described as a post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and had to leave um, because they were so traumatized uh, by that. Our fusion dire center director um, is a good example of that. But we had to spring into action, and we had to make sure that what the capital needed, it got. Uh, and we quickly mobilized uh, in order to uh, get city resources to the capital, Metropolitan Police Department, Fire and EMS. 
but also external resources and mutual aid resources into the city quickly. That included Virginia State Police, Maryland State Police, New Jersey State Police, National Guards from across uh, the region. And that was all run out of this facility uh, to make sure that, you know, when the resources came in, they knew where to go, where to report, who to report to. You know, it was a quick response. Uh, I think all of us were shocked at the beginning of it, uh, but we quickly mobilized to action. This is still one of those questions that hangs uh, over January 6th was the delays getting the National Guard. So this is, this is a challenge. Um, and, you know, I think it all stems from the fact that the mayor of the District of Columbia does not have control over the D.C. National Guard. And so it created a bottleneck for our response. Do you think there were people at the Pentagon who intentionally delayed the response? I can't, I can't say that. What I can say is that it did take time uh, for our requests to be answered uh, affirmatively. Eventually they were, but uh, when we requested the D.C. National Guard on December 31st, um, we did not get a response until January 4th, um, which does... I, I, you know, it's four days, three, four days. Um, but there's a lot of planning that can be done in those three to four days. Did you follow up every day? And what kind of answers were you getting? Uh, we did follow up. Um, and, you know, that the, that the request was under consideration. And um, we, as a city, um, as soon as we briefed the mayor and offered that recommendation, she approved it. And we asked immediately for the D.C. National Guard because... We knew that there were supporters of the former president that were coming into the city uh, several days before January 6th. You'll recall there were protests on the 5th as well, um, and a lot of the crowds were coming in on the 3rd and the 4th. And so we wanted those assets in place um, as soon as possible. you think the Pentagon was dragging its feet then? Uh, again, very difficult to say. Uh, I, I don't want to um, assume what someone's thinking in their minds. What was concerning for me as the uh, Homeland Security Director was that we didn't have an answer. We're hearing that then Attorney General Barr wanted to take control of the Metropolitan Police Force. How do you respond to that? Well, um, we, uh, we were concerned about uh, certainly the rhetoric coming out of the White House uh, um, when those protests were happening in May and June. There were some public threats that the president would invoke the Insurrection Act, um, which by extension uh, would place uh, some of the city resources under federal control. And so um, what, what I can say is that uh, certainly the city um, and the mayor and the police chief uh, were um, you know, aware of that uh, and making sure that, again, the city stayed in control of its own police force and its own resources. Did the police chief meet with the attorney general during that period and talk about that issue. I heard that he did. What do you suspect the motive was for even suggesting that? Well, the president at the time uh, did make public comments about uh, his belief uh, that the city's response was inadequate. Um, I think he you know, spoke about law and order. Um, certainly the protests that we saw were, uh, were significant and certainly um, did cause a lot of damage uh, across the city. Um, but again, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Police Department, our public safety partners, 
um, were fully mobilized and, and really um, were, were out. I think the, the, the challenge was uh, that federal law enforcement resources were de also deployed across the city, causing much confusion um, when you have individuals in, um, who are not, have no insignias on them and who are heavily armed um, walking around our neighborhoods. That causes a very confusing and scary situation uh, for our residents. That was my exclusive interview with Dr. Christopher Rodriguez, head of Homeland Security for the city of D.C. There is still a lot more to come in this investigation now. It is all firmly in the hands of the Department of Justice. And I think after the new year, it may be weeks after the new year, it may be in the early months of the new year, uh, there will be indictments. And don't just pay attention to what's happening at the Department of Justice. Pay attention to what's happening in Fulton County, Georgia. Because there is a special grand jury that's been impaneled there by the prosecutor, Bonnie Willis. That's the case where former President Trump asked the Georgia Secretary of State to see if he could find 11,780 votes. Remember that phone call? It's all on tape. We're going to talk about the findings of the January 6th committee with Jonathan Weiner, formerly of the State Department. Jonathan, thanks for joining us once again. Happy to be with you, Jeff. What is your most important takeaway? I have two really important takeaways. The first is, is that once upon a time, people thought of Trump's efforts to overturn the election, to change the result with all the lawsuits and other frenzy of activity, and the insurrection were two completely separate things. Trump was doing his thing trying to stay in office, and the insurrectionists were a mob who got excited. And the Justice Department was basically proceeding on that theory and going after the insurrectionists, but there was no evidence in 2021 and for the first months of 2022, that they saw them as integrated. And the House Select Committee report shows them to be completely integrated, all part of the same thing, which is that uh, Trump began efforts as early as the summer of 2020 uh, to have a fail safe uh, to make sure that if he lost the election, he still won it and he stayed in office. And the insurrection was the direct result of that. And the committee makes no bones about that. It's very clear. And the second point is that this is Liz Cheney's report. The report focuses blame squarely on Donald Trump and a handful of other people, in particular uh, his confederate at the Justice Department, Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to become attorney general, um, and his uh, intellectual um, eminent Grease uh, lawyer, John Eastman, who was the one uh, main proponent of the idea that it didn't matter what the voters said, what mattered in the end is getting enough stuff stirred up that you could find ways to keep Trump in office with constantly changing theories of how you might do that. And that's really what the report covered. It let go and didn't address a host of other issues, a host of other actors, focused squarely on those actors, and did the very important work of uh, blaming Trump for what Trump was responsible for. And that's important. Do you think the committee did a a good enough job of presenting evidence to the public of the former president's culpability, the kind of job that makes 
the Department of Justice's job easier? Yes and no. First, yes. The executive summary, 100 plus pages of that, lay out a number of specific acts of Donald Trump, which relate to specific criminal offenses based on testimony and evidence from Republicans and uh, from contemporaneous records of various kinds, which is uh, extraordinarily solid and within the confines of an executive summary, um, very extensive. So they absolutely did their job on that. And that makes it easier by um, making the pathways clearer. No, in two different ways. First, uh, the executive summary portion, as I mentioned, is confined really to a focus on President Trump and leaves out a discussion of a lot of the other actors. And for that part, uh, as of now, we have to say that there's a lot left out that's going to be essential. The other um, no is the question of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea for Congress to do criminal referrals in this extraordinary politicized environment. The same facts in the same report with a statement that we do not make a criminal referral uh, in order to uh, eliminate any argument or question that any action by the Department of Justice is going to be political in nature. The facts are what the facts are. We're convinced that crimes took place, but we are not making a referral. It'll be up to the Department of Justice to decide what to do. That may sound like a distinction without a difference, but I think it's an important one. Congress has the authority, the right, and, um, and from time to time exercises that right to do criminal referrals. But here in this polluted information environment, it might have been better uh, for them not to do that while laying out the evidence of crimes and saying they believed crimes took place. What does your gut tell you? Do you think the former president is going to face charges? Yes. You do. You're, you, you sound pretty confident. Well, you didn't ask me the question, which would have had a different answer, of whether Merrick Garland's Department of Justice will bring charges. You asked me the question whether he would face charges. Oh, so what is the distinction there for you that he'll face charges in Fulton County, Georgia? Yes. Interesting that you should say that. Bonnie Willis, the prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia, is, you know, she's out of the political cauldron of Washington, D.C. She's not in this. That's right. And the way she has fought to secure her testimony before the grand jury, some pretty prominent... Trump supporters, Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, and others. And, and I was down in, in Atlanta when Giuliani testified. He went in talking to reporters. He snuck out without saying a word. And I don't know if we've seen him since then. So you think that's a strong case, and you think there will be charges against the former president coming out of that case? I do. And other lawyers I've talked to who've looked at that case and looked at the law have the same judgment that he clearly violated um, state law. And there's a case to be made there about interfering um, with the elections in Georgia. It's a criminal case and that that um, prosecutor is likely to make them. Now, what the Justice Department does is a completely different matter. It has not um, it did not move with appropriate speed in 2021. It's quite clear in retrospect that there wasn't much going on. They treated the insurrection and the coup effort as distinct. That was the wrong theory of the case. I should say, Jonathan, my sources at the Department of Justice would, they would push back. You know, they bristle at those who say the January 6th committee was way ahead of their investigation. They say it's not true. Yeah, let, let them bristle at that. There's no public evidence to date 
that it, uh, uh, people uh, who were involved in the uh, in the political world, as opposed to from the lower depths, were being interviewed by FBI agents, let alone brought before a grand jury. There's been none. It became very visible uh, after the select committee undertook its uh, public work. So um, if they did it, they did it with a secrecy I've never seen in Washington in connection with any major investigation. Um, uh, certainly, they've taken their time, and there's not a lot of time left. I would not call Merrick Garland weak, and he certainly is a person of great integrity. He's very careful, and he spent years and years as a judge. And it raises the question, in light of what we've seen, about whether the caution has been um, too much caution, or whether it will turn out to have been prudent and proper. You know, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not a lawyer. But I could make the case, just based on what's in the public domain, that the former president committed that crime. Could you? I think it's unmistakable. That was the purpose, the clear purpose of the rally. It was the clear purpose of the tweet saying, come to Washington January 6th, it will be wild. He signaled it. He called, called them to Washington. And he encouraged them to march down to the Capitol and said he'd be with them. And he did a whole lot of other things and complained bitterly when Mike Pence would not interfere with the proceeding by exercising authority he does not have under the Constitution. Yes, I think that the case is clear. Jonathan Weiner, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Good to see you, Jeff. Before we go to break, I just want to mention that the former president, he has released statements. He said the people understand that the Democratic Bureau of Investigation... He's calling the January 6th committee, the Democratic Bureau of Investigation, the DBI. He says they are out to keep me from running for president because they know I'll win. And that this whole business of prosecuting me is just like impeachment was. A partisan attempt to sideline me and the Republican Party. That is this week's America Change Forever. For now, I am Jeff Begays. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.